turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, Saul rallies the men behind Jonathan, but then he makes a foolish vow which gets in the way, causing the men to sin. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 14 verse 24. The title of the message is... A heart that causes trouble. First Samuel chapter 14. Well, we saw last week that God has done a great miracle. You know, he used Jonathan and his assistant to strike fear into the Philistine army, and then God sends an earthquake that just starts a rout of the entire Philistine army. And you know, this is the perfect opportunity for Saul to wake up and repent. The Lord's trying to get his attention. Oh, it's a great opportunity for him to go, you know what? I'm going to stop being stubborn. I'm going to yield to the Lord. I'm going to get this right. And then let's, let's go and follow the Lord to victory. But instead of being an example of servant leadership, Saul refuses to acknowledge his wrongdoing. And why is that? Well, we're going to see Saul's chief downfall. It's that he's more concerned with how the people see him than how God sees him. And in his stubbornness, he turns what should have been and was a miracle into a burden upon the people. So chapter 14, we begin in verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. Remember verse 33, we ended last week. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed over unto Beth-Avon. But the very next statement is, and the men of Israel were distressed that day. For Saul had adjured the people saying, cursed be the man that eats any food until evening that I may be avenged on mine enemies. And so none of the people tasted any food. And all they of the land came to a wood, and there was honey upon the ground. And when the people were come unto the wood, behold, the honey dropped. But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath. Wherefore, he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand, and dipped it in a honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes were enlightened. And then answered one of the people and said, Your father straightly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man that eats any food this day. And the people were faint. And then said Jonathan, My father has troubled the land. See, I pray you how mine eyes have been enlightened, because I have tasted a little of this honey. Here we see that Saul makes the people swear a foolish oath. In verse 24, the men of Israel were distressed that day. Why? Because Saul made them make this promise. 
The word distressed, it means oppressed, hard-pressed, to experience hardship and trouble. It's usually a word that's used by when Israel's enemies are ruling over them. So, and who was oppressing them? It tells us Saul was. For he had, King James says, adjured. It means to make someone bind themselves with an oath. He had made them make a promise, made them swear that they would not eat any food until the evening. For what purpose? So that I may be avenged on mine enemies. Wow. This is all about you, Saul? When did this all become about you and your enemies? How is this personal vengeance more important than his nation's freedom? Can I just urge you to beware of leaders who make it about themselves? Always beware of leaders who make it about themselves. Because they may promise you freedom, but they will always bind you in chains as strong as any enemy. For what God designed to be an awesome day of victory, Saul made a day of exhaustion. For it says, none of the people tasted any food. By forcing everyone to make this oath, they didn't eat and they were exhausted. And so instead of rejoicing in what God had done, they felt the burden to fulfill the self-interested needs of their king. And so verse 25, all day of the land, they came to a wood as they're chasing the Philistines. And it says there was honey upon the ground. And when the people were coming to the wood, behold, the honey dropped. But no man put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. All they have the land, or those are Israelis, the land belongs to them. So those who had come to Saul's aid, remember when everything happened, even though Saul only had about 600 men, remember the Israelis started coming out of the caves, those who had been captured by the Philistines and forced to work, they started fighting against the Philistines. And so all these people have been flocking to Saul as they're pursuing the Philistines. And it says, when all they have the land came to the wood, honey began to drop, it means to ooze onto the ground in non-cultivated areas of the promised land, it was very common for beehives to become too full and then they would crack and split or the honey would just start to stream and it would pool on the ground. And so as they entered into this wood, they were, the honey had dripped and it was just sitting on the ground in these pools of honey. God had provided food for them, sustenance, so they could keep up the chase. But it says, no man put his hand to his mouth the phrase there puts an interesting word. It means to stretch out to connect two things, hand to mouth in this case. In other words, God didn't make it complicated. He had provided a simple solution so they could have victory over their enemies. And yet the people feared to take hold of this simple solution because they believed God would punish them if they violated their promise. My uh, very first pastor, a very godly man, but he came from a kind of a holiness background. And so it was so funny, whenever we'd be playing cards, he'd give us a hard time because that was the devil's game. And it's funny because one time somebody brought him a card table, but for the purpose of like storing stuff. And he's like, no, I can't take it. And it was just a different way of thinking back then. But when you look at some of the things that I've seen in that side of Christianity, they can be very enslaving. Very enslaving. And it is very sad when we add rules that burden men in a moment when God wants to bless. Now, let me make something very clear. <laughs> this does not mean that God doesn't have standards or that it's okay to violate the standards he does have. That's not what I'm saying. The point is that God would never have told them not to eat 
until one man's desire for revenge was sated. He would have never told them that. And so this was something that God had designed to be a blessing. And now they couldn't partake of it out of fear. But one person wasn't there when Saul made all the people promises. If you remember, Jonathan went on this attack without telling his father. And so at some point, we don't know where, they link back up again. And Jonathan, because he did not hear, verse 27, but Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath, heard not. We don't know why Jonathan and his assistant weren't there when this oath time came, but he wasn't. And so because of that, he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand, the walking staff he was having. They weren't stopping for anything. And so as he was just moving along, he dipped it in, kind of like a Tootsie Pop and moved on. And put his hand to his mouth and his eyes were enlightened. Uh, The word there means brightened up. He was energized. And you know, that is something you need if you're in hot pursuit of the enemy. If you're in hot pursuit of the enemy, being exhausted is not a benefit. When I am out mowing the lawn, my wife would frequently come out and say, have you had any water anytime recently? And of course, what do I say? I'm fine, I'm fine. And of course, you know, I'm getting exhausted, I'm getting dehydrated, and you need those things. And I don't know how I turned the lawn into an enemy, but you get the point. (laughs) The idea is this blessing from God became a burden because of Saul's selfishness. Verse 28, then answered one of the people and said, your father straightly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man that eats any food this day. And the people were faint. Can you imagine what it was like to see Jonathan when you all know the promise you made and he's dipping down and he's eating and he's just got that extra burst of strength and you're thinking, seeing someone else being able to eat when you couldn't was so very discouraging. You know, Jonathan probably even wondered why they weren't eating. And so they tell him, your dad made us make a promise. And when Jonathan hears why, he immediately recognizes that his father's oath has brought awful consequences for it says the people where faint means in a state of weakness or exhaustion. Can you imagine trying to take on the Philistines if you eventually catch up to them at this point? And so Jonathan critiques his father's oath. Then said Jonathan, verse 29, my father has troubled the land. See, I pray you, how mine eyes have been enlightened because I tasted a little of this honey. This oath is messed up is what he's saying. My dad's oath is messed up. God planned to do so much more for Israel on this day. How much more, he says, if happily, verse 30, the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they now found. For had there not been now a much greater slaughter amongst the Philistines? He says, God wanted to do so much more for Israel this day, but my father's actions will both take away that and create new problems. Verse 31, and they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. Aijalon is about 14 miles west of Jerusalem. It's a city in the hills of Ephraim that belonged to the tribe of Dan. It was very close to the Philistine border, but not very far from Michmash. The Philistines are routed. They're fleeing. And that's as far as the Israelites could push them? Instead of crushing the Philistines, this just pushed them back to the borders that existed after Samuel's victory just 10 years back. And so while this was a big victory, it didn't give Israel any new land. The Philistines would still be a major problem. And yet, that's not the only new problem that Saul's created. Look at verse 32. And the people, this is after they finally 
end the fighting for that day and it's come nighttime. Now they're allowed to eat. And this is the people flew upon the spoil. When you're routed like this, there's no time to grab your stuff. So whatever flocks, foodstuffs, whatever they left behind, the people flew upon the spoil and they took sheep and oxen and calves and they slew them on the ground and the people did eat them with the blood. Now, I read this as a kid and I thought to myself, gross, you know, they're just animals. They killed the animals and they're just eating it without even cooking it. That's not what's going on here, okay? The phrase on the ground, it means they didn't go through the process of bleeding the animal out before they carved it up and then cooked it, okay? They carved it up as soon as it was dead and started cooking the the meat. So they ate it with the blood still in it. Now, Leviticus 19.26 clearly forbids this. This is a command from God. In Leviticus 19.26, he told Israel this. He said, you shall not eat anything with the blood. So there's no confusion about what God wants them to do here. So here's the crazy thing. Saul, by enforcing a command God didn't give, Saul stumbled the people into disobeying a command God did give. And that is a big problem. It's a problem with legalism. It's a problem with adding to the word of God. It's a problem with making it about you and your ideas and your ideology instead of just sticking to the scripture. In James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it tells us, Let there not be many teachers among you, for you shall receive the greater condemnation. And then it goes on in verse 2, and it says, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. When it's explaining, let there not be many teachers or leaders among you, because we receive the greater judgment, there's a greater accountability before the Lord if you're a leader representing him. He explains why. Because in many things we offend all. And particularly, if any man does not offend in word, the same as a perfect or whole or mature man, he's able to bride the whole body. The idea is it's very easy when you're in a place where you're speaking before people to mess up and misrepresent the Lord. To interject yourself and to get in the way. And so it's something, leadership, speaking for the Lord, representing the Lord that should be done with great humility. Luke 17, Jesus echoed those words. He said, it's impossible, but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. That something I might say might stumble someone's faith. That's huge. That's huge. We pray before we come into the service and somebody prayed for me tonight, you know, help will not to be nervous. Now, I am by nature introverted and while I have grown used to public speaking, because I've been doing this for 25 years, that's not something I gravitate towards. I would much rather be in in the background, stacking chairs somewhere. But as they prayed that, I thought to myself, Lord, I still fear the idea of me misrepresenting you. It's impossible that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It'd be better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he'd be cast into the sea and that he should offend one of these little ones. The moment a leader forgets that the people he's leading are God's kids and not his own or her own, that's when you get into trouble. I love that 
story Jesus tells. Which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him by and by when he is coming into the field, go and sit down to eat? No master would do that. He says what Jesus said here. Will he not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I can sup and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken and afterward you shall eat and drink? Then you can eat and drink. If you want to be a good leader, you feel a call from God to be a leader, then you need to recognize that it's not about you. You're a servant. It's not about what you want or how you want the people you lead to view you. None of those things matter. What matters is how people see the Lord. That's what matters. Doesn't matter what my legacy is. Doesn't matter what people think about me. He's unintelligent. Oh, okay, as long as you love Jesus more, you can think whatever you want about me. I remember Pastor Romain used to come up at the Bible college and he would talk to us and and they'd say, Pastor Romain, what do you want us to call you? And he said, call me stupid. I don't care. Just listen to the word when I teach it. He was an ex-Marine drill sergeant and so he was very blunt. But he loved the Lord. He didn't want to misrepresent the Lord. Because what matters is how people see the Lord. When I make it about me, people do see something about the Lord. The wrong thing. (laughs) They see God as cruel or callous or unreasonable like Saul did here. They see God as someone who lays burdens on people rather than blessings. And when people sense that as a characteristic or trait of the Lord, they resent his commands. It's why Ephesians 6, 4 exists, where it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. It's why Ephesians 6, 9 exists. And it says, and you masters, do the same thing unto your servants, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, and neither is there any respect of persons with him. It's why 1 Peter 3, 7 exists, which tells husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding. It's why 1 Peter 5, 2, and 3 exists, where it challenges pastors to feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, and not for greedy gain, but of a ready mind. And neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. All these passages exist that tell us, don't make it about you. I remember when I had my first teenager, my first child became a teenager, and there were, I didn't give birth to anyone. My wife did all that. And I was facing some unique challenges with myself. Of course, you think it's them. And I remember my wife, who sensed that things needed to be different and better with me, she said, I want you to read this book. It was called Age of Opportunity. The first two chapters rocked my world. He said, moms, dads, if you're making your parenting about you, about the need to feel respected, the need to feel this or that, the other thing, you're starting off on the wrong foot and you will fail. So much repentance needed to take place. All these verses exist here so that we don't make it about us. Leaders must be servants so others can see how gracious, awesome, loving, good, faithful, and holy the Lord is. Is that a heavy thing? Yes. That's why James 3.1 exists. Let there not be many leaders among you. And one of the things we ask when we do our premarital counseling and we look at the, the man who's in front of me, I say, are you ready to lead this family? Are you ready to die to self? 
That's your job. Your job is to die. Are you ready to die? And it's funny, you get the look back sometimes. I don't know. Well, you need to figure it out before you say, I do, because you shouldn't unless you're ready to die. What's the difference between a boy and a man? The boy thinks it's still about him. The man understands he gave that up a long time ago. It's never been about him. He was created to give his life away. Because Saul didn't do that, he stumbled the people. And so when the people are in sin, the tribal leaders take the issue to Saul. Look at verse 33 of 1 Samuel 14. And they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people sin against the Lord, and that they eat with the blood. And so Saul said, You have transgressed. Roll a great stone unto me this day. The word there, transgressed, it means to be unfaithful, to betray your part of a commitment. Well, God made many unconditional covenants with Israel. The covenant of the law was conditional. God would bless them if they obeyed. And so Saul is telling them, you're not doing your part. You have violated your part of the deal, which is nuts because he's ignoring his own violations that put them in this mess to begin with. And so Saul says, I'll fix this. Roll a stone unto me this day. Bring a big rock here so we can properly butcher these animals and let the blood drain out so God won't judge us. And so verse 34 Saul said, disperse yourselves amongst the people and say unto them, bring me hither every man his ox and every man his sheep and slay them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord in eating with the blood. And so all the people brought every man his ox with him that night and slew them there. Once the rock's in place, he sends orders out to have the people bring the animals they were killing for food to him. And so they forestall God's judgment for it says in verse 35 that Saul built an altar unto the Lord. The same was the first altar that he built unto the Lord. And so when God does not judge the nation for violating the law, Saul recognizes the Lord's graciousness publicly. He has an altar built, and he thanks the Lord. Now, it's interesting. Altars, obviously, when we think of them, we think of sacrifices. And they were usually constructed to make offerings, usually constructed for these sacrifices. However, when we read in the Old Testament, sometimes these altars were memorials just to thank the Lord. And I think of Jacob when he came back from... Laban, his father-in-law, and he came back home and he's really worried about Esau and everything works out. And it says right after that, he built an altar to the Lord, but it doesn't mention any sacrifices. It was just a memorial, something to say, thank you. Thank you, Lord. And so that's what Saul's doing here. He's wanting everybody to know, hey, we're very thankful the Lord was merciful and that he spared us. You know, some suggest Saul built this to thank God for victory over the Philistines. I personally think it's because he wanted to thank God for not judging them. But all we know for sure from the scripture is that this is the first time that Saul had ever done something like this. I don't think that's a good comment. (laughs) I think it's good to mark God's work in your life in special ways so that you never forget it. I have special things all a part of my life that are reminders to me. This bracelet here is a reminder. My wife gave it to me. Originally, I was at a conference and it was just one of those kind of rubber bands that they give you to know what lunch you have. And, but it had on the phrase, steps of faith. Anyway, I won't tell you the whole story, but that conference had a big impact upon my life. And so I wouldn't take it off. I left it on because I wanted that constant reminder, just take another step, Will. And so my wife got me something a little bit more permanent <laughs> to remind me. 
It's good to have those things. So I can't know Saul's heart. I don't know if he really was doing this just to save face for the people or he was genuinely thankful. We'll assume the right thing because that's what the Bible tells us to do. But recognizing God's grace toward the nation does not mean Saul ever sought God's grace for his own sin, creating more and more trouble for himself and for the nation. So if you want to be a blessing to those around you instead of trouble, (laughs) confess your sins. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Because as you do that, his blood is going to be washing you and cleansing you. The Lord knows our frame that we're simply dust. We come to him and go, Lord, this is what I was thinking. and It was the wrong way to think. And I made a bad decision. I sinned. I blew it. I took matters into my own hands. And I'm sorry. I want to make it right. He is faithful. He is righteous. And he'll forgive you. And he'll wash you. Amen? That's how we can be a blessing to those we lead. Rather than being more troublemakers like Saul. And so, Lord, if there's any of us here and we've been stubborn, Lord, we've been pride-filled, we've said, I didn't do anything wrong, or that's not my fault, Lord, we lay down that pride right now, that stubbornness, and we come clean before you. And like you were longing for Saul to just say, Lord, I blew it. Lord, we make that confession now. Thank you for your great mercy, Lord. Showered upon us, we pray that we might be those who are a blessing to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Say